Hello everyone and welcome to my Unorthodoxy podcast. My name is Duncan and here are a few of my thoughts on liberalism, the ideology of the possible over the actual. I'm giving this piece the title, When the Dragon Eats the Night. Once you know the backstory, you'll see it everywhere. Sometimes the frequency illusion is no illusion at all. The backstory I mean is the essential lie that is liberalism, that fashionable ideological hang-up that has made our world in its image, or rather, that we have used to make the world according to a certain distortion of the human image. We made liberalism for ourselves and now it is unmaking us. It follows the modern trend of seeing politics as a technique, that is, as a mode of control. Soon, politics becomes a technology as technique is reified in systems and processes and bureaucracies. Life becomes very machine-like. By definition, liberalism is a political and social ideology or technology that promotes individual rights, not virtues, and liberties, not commitments, and free enterprise, money, not value. It does this by seeking the greatest possible freedom from constraints and custom. It is especially this emphasis on freedom that beguiles people, who, after all, wouldn't want to be free. But such freedom implies that we should always be wanting and always hungry, like the Thessalian king Erisichthon. He was, as liberalism would have us be, never fulfilled and always dissatisfied. Eventually, as his story goes, the fact that Erisichthon never felt full led him to literally eat himself. Although we do not have to take this act literally to see its meaning for us. Self-consumption becomes the primary human project, thanks to liberalism. If you ever eat yourself, and I obviously do not recommend this, you'll end up as dead as Erisichthon ended up, or certainly as dead inside. Well, liberalism is ultimately a kind of suicide. Whatever signs of decay we see in the world now, I will name a number of them below, the demon of liberalism is implicated. This is not a new demon, of course, only it is the one that most obviously structures many of the things we now call normal. I call liberalism a demon because we don't see it. It is invisible, but then... Once you know the backstory, once you see the pattern it imposes on the world, the presence of the demon becomes impossible to miss. To be clear, liberalism has many gains. To say that there is nothing good in liberalism is a lie. But liberalism itself remains the bigger lie. It is a contextual falsehood because it takes the easy pickings of truth, but not its more difficult dimensions. The successes of liberalism have often come at the cost of recognizing its excesses. The benefits are noticed, but its costs are typically put down to regular, everyday forms of coping. My aim here, then, is just to focus on its chief excesses, namely its boundarylessness and its unscrupulous optimism. The former is evident in unbounded freedom, the latter is evident in any unbridled faith in sheer, de-worlded potential and progress. By now, for instance, we know that liberalism's idea of negative freedom is precisely what the ancients would have called 
slavery. It turns out that if I can have whatever I want, I am not free at all. Freedom, in its truest and most positive form, is never just freedom from constraints. Rather, it is the freedom to commit to the right constraints. We are not free if we can choose whatever we want. We are free only when we are allowed to choose well. It is worth mentioning, especially since the topic is hot, that speech is similarly not free if you can say whatever you want. It is free only when you can speak the truth. Speech is freest, in fact, when it speaks the language of truth, beauty and goodness. To linger on this issue for a moment longer, current debates around free speech tend to fall into the liberalist trap of assuming that speech is free when it is free from hate, as ideologically defined, or free just to express the self, as ideologically defined and understood. For liberalism, speech is free when relieved of limits. This is to say it is free when the limits of speech are invisible to the speaker who just happens to conform to the ideological status quo. Free speech starts, in this case, to be defined by whatever mode of conformity happens to be in fashion. For liberalism, speech is free when it feels free. But it is a mistake to assume a simple identity between what things feel like and what they are. Liberalism does not like the category of error as a common human problem. This, ironically, is probably why it tends towards a kind of Puritan moralism. To be clear, I am in favor of free speech. I agree with the basic principle that no state or corporation should determine what I am and am not allowed to say. People should be at liberty to speak out of turn. But this in itself is no indication of real freedom. My preference for a law that unbridles the tongue does not mean that I think any talk whatever will be wholesome. Human beings are fallen creatures, sinners and addicts. If I want people to be allowed their transgressive speech, it is in part because I want to know who I would do well to avoid and who I would do well not to imitate. The compulsive guttermouth is not freer than the person who has been cancelled. I just think that the law that allows the former is more rational. The law that insists on cancellation or censorship is typically not a righteous law. It has less to do with the ethics than with a certain mode of control. Again, free speech, that is, speech that is really free, is speech that has the freedom guided by customs and traditions and wisdom and not just arbitrary laws to say true things. I am freest, in fact, when my words become portals to deeper and richer being in the world. I am freest in creating through words. This is also a dimension of the discussion on free speech that is typically neglected. We are natural creators. Truth itself is a creative thing because to live the truth and not merely to speak it means participating in its abundance. The acorn is creative when it becomes an oak tree but it's a slave when it turns into a cabbage or a cactus, because then it is not free to be itself. The person is creative when he becomes more fully alive and flourishes, but a slave when he becomes less than what he is. He is free, for instance, when he is able to accept the gift of his body, but a slave when he must give up his manhood because it is politically incorrect to be a man. Freedom means being able to commit to the givenness of being, 
and to being part of shaping that givenness into fullness. Slavery means usurping reality in the name of something that a bunch of mad theorists dreamed up in universities and French cafes. Liberal negative freedom doesn't tend to concern itself very much with truth at all. It denies any substantiality to being, after all. If people are apparently free to inflict enormous harms on their bodies, for instance, to have surgeons hack them up to fit the soteriology of radical constructivist and solipsistic subjectivists, people who seem to me to be like the self-harming prophets of Baal when they wanted their sky god to perform a miracle for them, see 1 Kings 18 verse 20 to 46, if people do this... They are clearly not free to ontologize a profoundly reductionistic and limited conception of reality, to materialize and literalize a false conception of self, is not freedom at all. But liberalism would say otherwise. And since liberalism is so normal now, what I'm saying here would sound like madness to a liberal. I would be accused of not respecting rights and freedoms. That would be untrue, of course. I very much respect the rights and freedoms of the demon-possessed. I just happen to think that their rights are wrong and that their freedoms are slavery. They can have what they want if the law permits it, and I will act as fairly and kindly and lovingly towards them as I am able. But I will not agree with them. The mere fact that something is illegal does not make it right or even good. As Jesus taught, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Well, I can see the fruit of liberalism and it looks pretty rotten to me. So again, to be clear, to act in any way that ends up radically tearing us away from the world and each other is clearly not freedom but slavery. Christ also talked about slavery to sin. You can have a look at John 8 verse 34. In fact, it seems to me what he calls sin, disconnection from reality, liberalism calls freedom. The fact that this so-called freedom is peddled to people as a kind of salvation is surely enough reason to ask, what's going on? So what is the essence of liberalism? Well, when I mentioned that once you know the pattern, you'll see it everywhere, I was talking about the essence of liberalism. In addition to being an overt rejection of Catholicism, it can be summed up as the inversion of the relationship between what the old metaphysicians called act and potency. We live in an age of inversions. The cart draws the horse, the tail wags the dog, the animal in the man controls his higher faculties, and materialism is, apparently, more desirable than any idealism. In the old stories, dragons were defeated by knights. In the modern story, knights show up to passively submit themselves to be eaten by dragons. Things do not go well for the damsel in distress, of course. In myths and legends, monsters were there to be slain, whether by Marduk or Beowulf or St. George. In the modern story, we feel sorry for the monsters, so we take it upon ourselves to ensure that they are well fed. We nurture monsters, those symbols of disorder and radical equivocation and negative freedom. They're doing quite well, thank you very much. This is what the inversion of act and potency means. Act refers to what is, that is, to what possesses reality. Potency refers to what could be, to potential and potentiality. 
On this side of heaven, of course, everything is a mix of act and potency. God is the only pure act. He is pure reality. The main thrust of liberalism in its antagonism towards Catholicism is to reject the ultimate and pure act, God, in favor of all created things, which include a mixture of act and potency. In Platonist terms, this effectively amounts to picking the cave over the bright light of the real. But this rejection of God as pure act is only the first step. The next step is to confuse act and potency in everything else. With everything that depends on God for its existence, act ought to take priority over potency. Reality is first, potential as unrealized reality is second. In other words, potency is always dependent upon actuality. There are hierarchies in being, but with liberalism in the wake of a number of global developments in philosophy and media and culture and anti-culture, the relationship between act and potency flips. This is the source of our inverted clown world, in which politicians are clowns and comedians get slapped for telling jokes. In this world, the jokes aren't funny anyway, but the news is. In clown world, it's fascist to want basic freedoms in the positive sense, and anti-fascist to beat a journalist senseless. What Girard called a crisis of distinctions, the inability to maintain existing barriers, the ancients called demon possession. The modern world is diabolical in that it aims itself towards dismembering things. Demons, as in Dostoevsky's demons, may be ideas that render the real incoherent, just so that potency can get a little more wiggle room. Even truth nowadays is something yet to be discovered and yet to be decided, rather than being something with any ontological grounding. Whereas the ancient world stressed what exists over what could be, the modern world stresses what could be over what is. Sometimes it even favors what could be over and against what is. As this should make plain, the trouble with liberalism is that it will always have a tendency, whether in daily life or political thought, to side with hopes and pipe dreams against concrete realities and meanings and experiences. I can name many examples of this emphasis on potency over act, and so this is what I'm going to do below. I offer these examples less as explanations than as provocations, and so I'm deliberately omitting complexities in the name of simply pointing out what seems obvious to me, namely, that all of the below are cases in which observable, real, felt things, presences in the world, have been rendered subservient to potencies of one kind or another. That is, imaginings, or what designers call affordances. So here is my list. It is rather long. Um, I will also mention some thinkers who deal with the themes that I'm bringing up. So... Any conceptualization of the self and the other that denies the concrete being of either. Any defense mechanism that refuses auto-affectivity in favor of some emotional or rationalistic substitute. Michelle Henry writes about this. The triumph of the therapeutic. Philip Reef writes about this. The entire culture of feeling good. No thoughts, just vibes over accepting and dealing with real problems. Wanting to change the world without the tedious effort required to work on yourself. Jordan Peterson famously writes about this. 
the priority of theory over being. Martin Heidegger writes about that. The de-worlding of time and thus the priority of the digital present over felt time. Heidegger, Douglas Rushkoff and Byung-Chul Han write about that. Neoliberal economics, machines and technologies built with no mind paid to the limits of the earth. The priority of the digital over the real. The priority of profilicity over authenticity. Muller and de Ambrosio write about that. An emphasis on authenticity over ethics and character. We've got Charles Taylor and Byung-Chul Han writing about that. The priority of efficiency over excellence, as Alistair McIntyre writes about. Doom scrolling. The priority of mass production over handcraft. Way back, William Morris wrote about that. The concern with effect over communicating truth. Edward Bernays wrote about this as something he advocated for. Pseudo-events. Daniel Boorstin writes about that. The triumph of movies over life. Neil Gabler writes about that. The prioritizing of image over substance in advertising. The priority of individuals over the family. The denial of capabilities in mass production imitating education systems. Synthetic foods. Modern Gnosticism. Eric Vogler writes about that. Modern luxury Gnosticism. Mary Harrington writes about that. The existence of fast food, which fails to flourish even as it fills people up. Branding. Mediocrity. Barbie's stupid you-can-be-anything slogan, which pays no attention to capacity and all attention to will. The way cell phones are used to deny present company. The priority of the ontology of command over the ontology of assertion. Giorgio Agamben writes about that. The commodifying of sex through contraceptive technologies, the technologization and further commodifying of made-up conceptions of gender in woke capitalism, commodification itself, the favoring of equality as the empty signifier over natural abilities, the rise of victimhood culture, Bradley Campbell and Jason Manning write about that, abortion, racism, euthanasia, communism, capitalism, fascism, anti-fascism and many other isms, the modern elevation of sex over marriage, the postmodern elevation of bodies over people, the packaging of everything to conceal the contents of products, Freudo-Marxism, Carl Truman writes about that, the radical denial of relationships in favor of atomization in society, culture and science, the triumph of methodology over the sciences, Nietzsche observed that, the loss of tradition, Roger Scruton writes about the recovery of tradition. The ideology of progress. Chesterton is still brilliant on that. Divorce. The priority of STEM over the liberal arts. Subsuming all qualitative being under quantitative metrics. The priority of the spreadsheet over the employee. Bureaucracy. The favoring of univocal reason over the analogy of being or the metaxological speaking of being between. William Desmond is my go-to philosopher on that. The mass production of self-help literature in an age of total mental breakdown, the communicative priority of virtue signaling over virtue and influencing over wisdom and observational force, the triumph of loneliness over relationality, suicide, the confusion of means and ends, the cultural preference of disposability over repair, the triumph of being amused over amusing oneself and many, many more. Everywhere you look, you will see signs of this priority of potency over act. My list is incomplete, 
and it's already too long. Most of us participate in this way of being and perceiving being without a second thought. For instance, we will fill up our cars with fossil fuels because we have to, because cities deworld us and expand our contexts beyond sensible human size. This technology of liberalism is now unavoidable. But it is also clear now that the technology, even with its perks, takes a stand against being. It takes a stand against act. Yes, it is real, but once it was imagined. And it was imagined without the recognition, that is, without the imagining, that such a potential might ultimately undo the actual. In fact, one sign of the impoverished imagination in our time is found in its inability to conceive of the real as a priority. Note here, the problem is not potency itself. Everything has natural given potencies and allowing things to become more fully themselves is at the heart of life. Arguably, it is this natural given will to become, this will to flourish, that has been hijacked and exploited by liberalism. Things must manifest themselves more fully. Seeds become trees, children become adults, immature and selfish people should become more virtuous. This is the right place for potency, the ontological priority of the given over the possible, the priority of gratitude over merely imaginative possibilities. Against the liberal inversion of act and potency, I think of Socrates, who, on facing death for contravening a certain consensus, decided to go with a very different and unexpected strategy. He paid no attention at all to the effect of his words when he was being tried, and so he clearly also paid no mind to whether he would get his way or not. He was less concerned with the potential of surviving the trial than with simply recognizing and speaking the truth. It was as if this recognition of and speaking of truth was the point. It is the point. Goodness itself, not goodness for the sake of some other end, ought to be our aim. Communion with the good is enough. Attunement to the goodness of being is enough. Let that be where we begin. Yes, we will see many potentials. It would be equally foolish to side with act only to deny all potency. To choose, for instance, that acorns should remain seeds and that children should remain children, we are made to see potency and being. But we will not see potency properly if we do not first attune ourselves to the goodness of being. This, of course, is by no means the last thing that should be thought about or said on how to deal with the problems of liberalism. My aim remains to discern the signs of the times, and to me, it seems that this normalizing of liberalism's boundarylessness and its optimistic praise of potency overact needs to be recognized fast. At the very least, I wanted to highlight where we ought to begin to have any sense of what kind of politics we ought to commit to. I submit that it will be a politics of the real, a politics that in its fullest sense prioritizes act over potency. Mm -hmm.